Hello and welcome to The Footprint 40, a podcast that gets under the skin of the sustainability issues affecting the food service sector. My name's Nick Hughes, Footprint's Associate Editor, and in each episode I'll be joined by my fellow Associate Editor David Burrows to chew over the news and views making the headlines in our industry in company with a special guest. For our latest podcast, we were delighted to be joined by Thomasina Myers, the cook, writer and co-founder of the Oaxaca chain of restaurants. And you'll definitely want to hear Thomasina's views on plant-based menus, our appetite for eating insects and how we can plug the skills gap in the hospitality sector. The Footprint 40 is kindly sponsored by Myco UK, who are delighted to support the sharing of critical insights at a time when we must all rise to the challenge of protecting our planet. Thomasina, welcome to the Footprint 40. It's great to have your company. Before we get stuck into talking about sustainability in particular, perhaps you can just reflect on your experiences of the pandemic as a restaurateur and share some reflections on reopening and and the challenges that you still face as a business, but also your hopes for the future as we as we recover from this period. Gosh, that's a lot to fit into one um, <laughs> one phrase. <laughs> um, where do I start? Well, the pandemic was uh, was incredibly insightful time for the whole industry. I, I felt that um, as an industry, I felt very proud of what we did. Uh, that the main thing we seemed to do was feed the disadvantaged uh, at a time where food supply chains were in the most stress. Uh, every restaurateur uh, I knew uh, pulled out every finger to try and feed, whether it was NHS workers or people in care homes or just people in their local vicinity. I felt like we came out really showing um, the generous nature of our industry. Uh, and for that, I did feel incredibly proud to be part of it. Um, at Oaxaca, we teamed up with Chefs and Schools, a charity I helped set up, which I'm a trustee of. Uh, and we were taking um, food waste and food donations from people like the Felix Project and Balasu and turning them into uh, ready meals, like really beautifully home-cooked um, meals to send to families who would be on, on meal vouchers. And we saw a lot about meal vouchers later on um, and the government's reaction to them. Uh, what we did was to take the, the equivalent value of a meal voucher and we actually cooked food out of it so that families who wouldn't necessarily have good kitchens or any equipment or even the skills to cook good healthy foods for themselves received hampers of properly cooked food that would feed a whole family for a week um, so it showed me that if there's a will there's a way <laughs> and it showed me the government definitely needs to work hard on this then opening our doors well we were extremely lucky at Oaxaca because it turns out that Mexican does very well in takeaway uh, and we used the whole uh, pandemic uh, really as an exercise in rolling out our takeaway service throughout all our restaurants. And that really meant that we could keep our restaurants open through the second two lockdowns. The first lockdown, everyone was shut pretty much, um, apart from when we were feeding the NHS or, or chefs and schools. But in the second and third lockdowns, essentially our restaurants remained open for takeaway. And that meant that our, a lot of our staff had an excuse or reason to come in and, and keep busy, because I think the the biggest challenge for people um, being furloughed was, was that sense of having nothing to do, you know, nothing to get your teeth into, no project on the horizon. 
I think that's extremely hard for any kind of home, human being to deal with. It was just very lucky for us as a company so we could all stay in touch and see each other. And so that was wonderful. And then going to opening, you know, incredible to open our doors again. Uh, obviously, a lot of backwards and forwards and messaging from the government to showed they had no real understanding of how businesses work, lots of kind of last-minute decisions to shut, lots of food waste um, or, or trying to avoid f- wasting food with last-minute decisions to open and shut. Obviously, it was a difficult time for anyone to manage, but, um, but then opening at last was great. Um, again, there were lots and lots of um, critical paths of self and health and safety that the whole industry had to take part in. A lot of that seems to be now just wasted money um, that won't necessarily be used. Some of it hopefully will be used. We continue to use our screens. Actually, in Oaxaca, um, our staff continue to wear masks for the moment, um, just in line with what we feel our customers um, would want and expect. Uh, we'll review that as an ongoing basis. But overall, it's just extremely <laughs> wonderful to be open and feeding people again and seeing people interacting, spending time physically together again, and, and eating, you know, the whole thing of hospitality is people sharing a physical space, eating together, sharing food, uh, and, and that is what seems to be extremely good for physical and uh, mental well-being, and we're extremely pleased to be doing that service again. Yeah, I was just going to say, Thomasina, that's, you know, it's really positive, um, uh, uh, and um, great to hear, you know, that you're, you're you and other businesses are now open. Uh, I mean, are people are, are people eating different things than they did um, twelve was it eighteen months ago? Are, are you seeing any changes in in the types of things people are eating, or have you had to adapt your your your, your menus um, uh, given some of the um, supply chain issues that there have been as well over the past months? Uh, we haven't actually had to adapt our menus at all. I mean, our we have a menu that is. vegetarian uh, and we have food sales that are largely 50% vegetarian across the board Uh, and I think people knew that about us before the pandemic Uh, so it it was something you know even 14 years ago when we well we opened in 2007 it was yeah 14 years ago so even then our our menu was kind of 35 to 40% vegetarian so it's always something we've kind of believed in, in having really delicious, affordable kind of vegetarian choices. And it, and it feels that people were already coming to us because they knew that about us. And um, I think we've, we've definitely expanded our vegan menu in line with where that market is going and has gone, which has been a really fun and engaging task anyway, looking at the pre-Hispanic Mexican diet, which is largely plant-based in any case. A lot of the sauces and moles are are nut and seed enriched. That's where you get the proteins from, and then all the wonderful array of uh, beans. So, so that as like someone who loves food and who's interested in food history, it's actually been really engaging to see how the Mexican diet is so well adapted to to kind of being heavily vegetarian led. I think what the pandemic did do is make us look at all our supply chains and really think about where we could challenge ourselves uh, and. About a year ago, we moved from higher welfare chicken to free range, which is something that we believed in. And I think across all of our meat uh, and fish, what we continuously challenge ourselves with is, can we just put better quality meat on and then put more and more vegetarian choices on? 
so that you know we can do that journey of eating less meat but better quality which is something we fundamentally believe in and and do you feel that that by serving less meat but better meat and you know this is something that we're we're we've covered extensively at footprint but does it does that balance the cost equation does it allow you by serving more vegetables to serve better quality meat would you say or actually does it does it not work like that uh, from an operational perspective well i well i think the challenge of a restaurateur is you can't tell people to eat less meat you just have to put lots of delicious tempting vegetarian choices on the menu and tempt people into eating vegetables rather than telling people not to eat meat um, which is which is definitely the way we go about it, given that we're in the business of pleasure. Uh, so so that's that's the way we address it. But definitely, you know, the the cost impact of, of going to free range is is, is significant, um, as as you might imagine. Um, and and I think and I think yeah, definitely some of our some some of our vegetarian choices will definitely help offset that. Although we do try and pass on. You know, our vegetarian choices, generally, we try and pass on the cost benefit to our customers too, which is another way you can persuade people to eat more vegetables is if they're more affordable in any case. Um, But there definitely is, there is definitely some help there. And then I think just working with great suppliers is another way we try and look at it. So we've got a lovely bean tostado at the moment. We've got one of Hodmadod's Black Badger peas on it. Um, does is a great cooperative of farmers based in East Anglia that are really delving into the types of grains and pulses we used to eat in the kind of middle ages um, which are protein rich, really healthy and a very sustainable choice because obviously they're grown in this country so no food miles so I think you know highlighting suppliers like that is another way we can really you know tempt customers and help show them you know, fun, fun, and novel ways of eating that they might not necessarily thought of. I mean, we had a we had a grasshopper salsa on our menu recently over an asparagus taco that was um, essentially it was a red PPN but kind of enriched um, with with crickets. Sorry, not grasshoppers cr- with crickets. Uh, and again, it's it. You know, the point of the salsa was that it was delicious, and then the and then the crickets give it this wonderful kind of nutty flavour. So it's it's. It, actually that's what the Mexicans eat not supposedly be a gimmick and actually if you think about our love of prawns and crabs and mollusks essentially those are sea insects um, so I think taking pe- people on that journey and showing them a way to, to delve into the world of insect eating is another kind of fun way of looking at sustainable eating. T- Thomas the in- insect thing is interesting and one that Nick and I uh, often um, sort of debate about I, I personally I see a lot of potential in maybe as insects for feed for um, chickens and pigs and fish, I'm not quite as convinced that um, it'll gain traction with, with us, with humans. So how, how, did your, how did the dish go down and, you know, what was some of the feedback you got would be really interesting to know. Well, we, I mean, we've had quite a few insects on our menus over the years. We had a cricket flower brownie on for quite a long time. I actually took it off because I felt the, the flavour of the cricket slightly interfered with the flavour of the chocolate. And being a chocoholic, I decided that wasn't on. But actually, our sales of the cricket brownie were... They didn't get dented by the addition of cricket flour at all. Um, so I'm feeling rather guilty whether I should put that back on. Definitely a good protein source. Um, I think, you know, someone who's travelled a lot and, and 
you know, very used to eating um, crickets and grasshoppers and escamoles are ants' eggs. That's a kind of Mexican caviar. And you get them in season, I think it's February to April, and they are absolutely delicious in tacos. Um, and, you, you know, I've, I've had roast, roast um, gusanos, worms, with freshly made uh, avocado and freshly made corn tortillas. Again, really delicious. So as someone who's eaten insects, you know, pretty much every time I go to Mexico, I'm eating them. That, that's definitely not a gimmick. And I think it is just a mindset. I think on one hand, we're increasingly squeamish. So you look at the uh, drop in interest in game and the fact that in this country, our langoustine um, fishermen found it hard to sell their, their langoustine inside the Bichars. They normally just ship that to Spain. So we've gone through this rather prissy uh, relationship with food where we haven't really wanted to get our hands dirty. But, but I feel that's changing. There's this absolute thirst for wanting to cook and make and, you know, the sourdough revolution over lockdown. I think people increasingly want to know where their foods come from and want to be reconnected with it um, in a way that we've become completely disconnected from it. It's my hope that the more we become reconnected with it, the more we kind of delve into these harder, more esoteric ingredients and kind of attack them with relish. Let's talk a little bit about sustainability in particular. Um, during lockdown, obviously, you noted you went to uh, a takeaway model. Um, one of the things we've heard from businesses during the pandemic is how that's obviously created a lot more packaging. Um, and, um, you know, we obviously want to encourage people to, re to recycle and to reuse. So how have you tackled that challenge with the increase in takeaway and managing that packaging and making sure that it's disposed of or or it can be disposed of at least in the most responsible way given that we kind of switched to carbon neutral five years ago now it was obviously packaging was a big issue to right from the word go i mean we use almost 100 percent bagasse um i don't really know how you it sounds a bit like badass um, anyway, I don't know how you pronounce it, but it's essentially made from uh, sugarcane pulp, waste sugarcane pulp, and it's 100% compostable. So all our packaging, I think it's, I'm pretty sure it's, it's almost 100% now, is, um, is compostable in the home. Not, not like one day this might be compostable, but right today you can put it in your compost bin and that's fine. So that was kind of a bar we always set ourselves because it's kind of nonsensical for us and our take on sustainability not to have approached it in that way. I think on a wider level, the pandemic has been incredibly bad for disposables. When I think that pre-COVID, pre people were almost publicly being shamed for, bringing, for buying takeaway coffees and takeaway cups. Um, and then you saw that going right back. And even in hairdressing salons now, they cover you in plastic that they put straight into the bin. And I think we've got to get back to where we were before and, and, and much more so too because um, you know we can't keep disposing so much I think one of the positive things actually from COVID is the fact that now two or three days a week many people are working from home and hopefully that means people are actually cooking from home and they're not having to go to these takeaway shops and, and buying takeaway food because you know wherever you go to get your takeaway sandwiches there's an element of packaging um, and the more kind of sophisticated the takeaway you know, group is the more the packaging seems to be plastic if you go to a local sandwich shop that's a single independent you know normally it's just a paper bag which is fine um so i think actually the positive of eating working from home is you're traveling yes you're consuming less energy 
and hopefully you're you know maybe eating leftovers from the night before and 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 which is clearly much more sustainable than eating out in and lots of plastic takeaway packaging i imagine it was quite challenging to sort of unpick you know which packaging might be best might be most sustainable might might be most recyclable or compostable i think it's something that we often encounter um with our readers thomasina is you know they're sort of confused about which single-use packaging to use and indeed whether reusables might be an option how long did it take you to come to the and i think the pronunciation is right bagass how long did it take to come to that particular material uh, and did you consider reusables as, a, as an option so we've used what in our supply chain we have use a lot of reusables um, in our supply chain and crates and um, you know we did a big project about four years ago so that all our crates from our different suppliers could get reused and we made up a whole lot of them and had our own branding on them because we believed in that I think you know we have a sustainability champion in our in our business who's who's kind of sole motivation she's worked with us for 11 years now I think um, and she is you know, completely committed to sustainability in every way. I mean, we're looking at, at the moment, we're looking at where our rice comes from and whether we can switch our rice supply to farmers who are not using the flooding system, which, you know, which helps account for a lot of the methane emissions. We are looking at putting more vegetables on the menu. We're looking at different organic options. We're always looking at seasonality. You know, we try and look at every element of our business, including the insect feed, which you touched upon. We, we actually had a meeting this morning with a, a, a free-range and organic chicken farmer in this country who are still importing soy from the Amazon basin and, and had that conversation with them about how developed they are in looking at the insect um, solution. So I think as a chain, as a group of restaurants, we have some power in talking to our customers. I mean, we are tiny compared to the supermarkets absolutely minute so we have no purchasing power in in, t- in terms of relating to the the big supermarkets but in, you know we we have some size merit and and just talking about these things and getting other people to think about them I feel is is a positive step anyway and the more conversations you have and the more you talk to your customers about all these uh all these subjects I feel it just gets it on the agenda more and it gets everyone because I think you alluded you know the fact we were carbon neutral four or five years ago it's great but people weren't no one really gave a shit back then I, I think now people are really beginning to pay attention and it's great and it's and it's high time and it's you know we need to put more pressure on ourselves and more pressure on each other and in fact that competitive nature and the kind of race between companies is a really positive thing because uh, the more I the more I live the the more I believe in the power of companies to do good versus governments I mean governments have to do more and they have to get on board and they have to act quicker. It's actually shambolic how slowly most governments act, I think. Um, but, but as a company owner, I think you have a great power to, to kind of lead the charge, if you can, or if you have the desire to. Yeah, and I, I wonder how much, um, you know, how important it'll be for you and your business as somebody who's been carbon neutral for a number of years to help others through it because obviously the, the the competition to be carbon neutral it has intensified as you said uh, and that's great but on the other side it can lead to sort of cutting corners and shortcuts maybe over reliance on on offsetting 
um, or dubious offsetting schemes. So uh, I think you could have a real role here to explain and, uh, and help others. Well, I think offsetting is a really interesting point. You know, a couple of years ago, there was this great kind of billionaire race to see how many trees you could plant. But, you know, mono, monoculture forest doesn't do anything for biodiversity and questionably the amount of um, carbon they actually sink um, as well, especially in the northern hemisphere compared to the rainforest, is, 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 is fairly negligible. Not negligible entirely, but, you know, when I'm looking at um, regenerative farming, I mean, I was at Groundswell a couple of weeks ago, a regenerative farming um, conference, and it, it's actually extraordinary how much carbon farmers can sink if they are helped by the government and by restaurateurs and by the consumer who are prepared to pay a little bit more for farmers to grow food in a much more sustainable way. Good soil will be a massive part uh, in terms of carbon capture and sequestration if we allow the farmers to do that. Um, But they have to be helped to get there. They're about to lose a whole lot of subsidies uh, as we leave Brexit, they need to be helped to do the right thing. And the, most of the farmers I met at Groundswell were desperate to do the right thing. They just weren't, they weren't at all sure about how they were even going to pay themselves or survive in the next few years. So it's something the government really has to... Because some, you know, if you go from really, really poor soil and regenerate it, that, that carbon sequestration can be the equivalent of some rainforests. I mean, you can, you can capture an enormous amount of carbon at the same time as stimulating biodiversity, getting those bees and the worms and the dung beetles that we need for human survival to help our crops grow in any case. I mean, the beautiful thing about carbon capture, farming and good food is it's all part of the same solution. And if the government could get more savvy about that, that the whole circle, if you can help every part of the whole circle, it all helps feed itself. I mean, without good soil, we can't feed ourselves anyway. That's, that's going to be far more critical to human health than covid Um, But no one seems to be talking about that. But if you can help biodiversity, then you can help the bees and the worms, help the soil and the pollination, and then you can also help the farmers. You do have to pay a bit more for your food, though, and I think that's the one great taboo that that, that politicians are terrified of. And even in um, in Henry Dimbleby's food strategy that came out, you know, he was under a lot of fire. And, and, And also the big business loves to say, oh, you just want to get the poor to pay more money for their food. No, you, that's, that's not true. But yes, we do have to pay more for food, but better food. Because if the poor are only eating ultra-processed food, which is leading to 6,000 deaths every year anyway, how is, that, how is that good food for the poor? You've got to get people on better diets, which, is, which is, involves food education, the work we do with chefs and schools. It relies on, um, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's um, kitchens, canteens, where you're doing a model, where you're not just giving people food vouchers where they can go and eat ultra-processed food that ultimately kills them, but you actually give them vouchers to social canteens where they can sit down and eat properly um, produced food. But then that goes down to the staffing issue that you also talked about and how we can get young people invested in careers like farming and cooking, which are kind of life-enhancing and rewarding and, um, and ultimately really building up skills rather than just wanting to maybe deliver pizzas or, or stack shelves. And I think, going back to Tony Blair's desire to get 50% of the population into university, I think he did so much harm there. Because why would everyone want to go to university if they come out of it with a £50,000 debt uh, and then no job to look forward to? Uh, much better to build yourself uh, a tangible 
kind of skill set where you can go and actually produce something for the benefit of mankind. So it all sounds a bit kind of socialist and, um, you know, up in the air. But I think there's real merit to that. And the fact is we do have a shortage of, of pickers of food and farmers and cooks in this country. And it's something we need to kind of change our mindset about. These are all careers that are tremendously rewarding. Um, and, um, and, and, and maybe we should look at more seriously. From a Oaxaca perspective, what do you think you can do as a business to help make hospitality, a career in hospitality more attractive um, as a long-term career for young people coming into the industry? Because I think there is a, it feels like there's a perception in this country that it's a, a kind of transient career for people. People, you know, you might become a, a, a waiter, pay your way through a university degree, and then you'll go on to another job. But how, do, how can we keep people in the industry and develop them so that they want to become the next, you know, next generation of restaurateurs? Well, I think, I think working hours is a big issue. I mean, we've, we've always been a company where we, we try and encourage our staff not to work too many hours in the week. Um, you know, 50, 50 hour weeks are, even 50 hour weeks are not that sustainable. Uh, definitely when you're going beyond that. Uh, and if you're doing that for long term, that is, um, that is going to burn people out. Uh, I, so I think, I think there's got to be, there's got to be proper support. I mean, we definitely, we have a, we have a large HR team. We try and um, make sure people have always got room to grow and to develop their career. I think uh, I, my sister recently said to me, um, well, how do you expect people to work for so little money? But I think if your starting salary is the living wage, and from anywhere therein, you're building up skills. Definitely when I was young, I took it for granted that I was going to have to work um, my arse off for very little money to build up the skills um, to get people to take me seriously and to employ me. And I think, um, I think a good work ethic is absolutely vital. And it's interesting, a work ethic, because, you know, we have found that the Europeans who used to come over in, by, by the thousands had an extremely strong work ethic. Um, and it's not always found in this country. Um, that's a huge generalisation, but I find it extraordinary to think that um, you wouldn't want to work hard in any career that you and, and want to get better at it. But, but then it's up to the, the employer to make the working conditions good, to make people have fun at work, um, and, and to career develop them. And, and I think as an employer, you have to have all those things. Um, and really have the, the interest and well-being of your staff really at your core. Do you think as well we need to change the way we talk about such professions in this country? Um, we tend to use, you know, hospitality, farming, these kind of catch-all term of unskilled labour. I mean, the, the work I did in the hospitality sector when I was a student was anything but unskilled. I mean, I was terrible at it because of all the technical aspects of carrying plates and remembering tables and remembering orders. It's not unskilled labour. It's actually, you know, it's unskilled like anything. If you're not good at something, you're not skilled at it. But if you're good at something, it's hugely skilled. So do we just need to change the narrative around these careers as well? Yeah, I think it's extraordinary, actually. I, like you, I mean, I find working in a kitchen is one of the most gratifying things. The complexity of working a service, the challenges of making sure your food is all kind of prepped and the levels are kept up. And, you know, when all the busy tickets coming in, the challenge of making sure you get your food in the right flow, it's, it's, it's a really... Uh, 
kind of intoxicating and addictive uh, thing to do. I can't help thinking that if I was Prime Minister, I'd almost do national service in the kitchen because working in a kitchen teaches you how to work as a team, how to turn up, how, how, to, how to kind of know that your whole team is relying on you and, and how to multitask in every level. Uh, and I think, um, I think it's an incredibly valuable thing to learn. My nephew, in fact, is um, a supervisor in one of my restaurants. But before he got rescued by um, my training chef, uh, he was skipping school and playing truant. And he was kind of going rapidly downhill. And my training chef kind of literally kind of hoiked him up and got him in the kitchen. And he's never looked back. And I think it's an incredibly rewarding way of, of giving young people a chance of foot in the door. And that's what young people most need when they're starting out. You know, they might not want to work in hospitality for the rest of their lives, but it's incredibly rewarding. You learn so much. And it's just getting your foot on the ladder and, and getting some skills, getting some confidence and learning how to work with other people. Uh, so I think, I think it's an incredible. But I think, yeah, we do need to change our mindset. And I, I don't know how you do that, being now probably middle-aged. I don't know how you, you know, attract young people to, to the... But, but, you know, there seems to be a thirst to work more outdoors. You know, to, in terms of farming, I know many people who need more young people to come on board. They're happy to train them up. But this is, this is to give people jobs which are spending a large amount of time outdoors in the fresh air and training them up to, to, have a, to kind of gain really tangible skills and help save the world in the whole process. Um, so, you know, if I was young again, I mean, farming would definitely be something I'd be really interested in. Uh, and there are so many different careers like that. But I think, I think education in schools, it has maybe got to change because I find our education system is incredibly narrow. And where, where in schools do you get any proper food education or an idea that farming might be a good career prospect as opposed to going and doing a kind of college degree learning marketing? Marketing to do what? You know, what are you marketing? Um, so I think, I think, I think maybe our, our education system needs a wholesale reform if we're going to market these incredibly fulfilling, valuable careers to young people. Yes, I was struck by how in Henry Dimbleby's strategy, schools focused prominently, and he was an advocate of this whole school approach to food, where you embed food within not just the curriculum, but also within you know everyday school life, whether that's having with growing your own food, eating together, and uh, you know at the same in the same dining room, um, learning about food via the curriculum. Um, and as you say, it's it's you know it's been proven to to improve children's attainment when they're eating well at school, eating nutritious food. Um, and I think it probably is not sufficiently focused on in government strategy. So we we live in hope that uh, Henry's recommendations will be adopted, um, and um, you know school food and other food can be improved as a result. Well, I think it's extraordinary that many people in government still seem to think that good food is a luxury. And when you think that the food that we eat in this country now is the worst food in Europe and it's killing 60,000 people a year, uh, that's, that's, I mean, look at, what, look at what the government did at our COVID response. Look at how they moved heaven and earth. Food production also is contributing to global warming and insect depletion and biodiversity you know, annihilation. So this is not a luxury we're talking about. 
this is about getting people in from disadvantaged backgrounds educated properly because they're fed well. It's about saving carbon emissions, about saving biodiversity. It's part of everything. It's about survival. So yes, I think um, the sooner um, people stop seeing good food as a luxury and see it more as a necessity, the better. Terrific. Well, Thomasina, thank you so much for taking the time to share your insights and for joining us on the Footprint 40. Thank you. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Well, David, that was a fascinating discussion with Thomasina. What, what did you take out of that? Yeah, yeah, we covered a number of different topics from eating uh, ant's eggs to Tony Blair to bean tostados. Um, I think the really interesting role that uh, Thomasina uh, uh, could have is, is around sort of their them being a sort of one of the forerunners of carbon neutrality and uh, and how other businesses can do that well. I think it'll be really interesting um, to see how that develops. Um, and also, you know, how their, um, how their business changes uh, over the coming weeks and months. You know, she talked about um, less but better meat, um, which was great to hear. And also conversations down the supply chain. Um, I thought it was really refreshing how, how close she seemed to be with some of her suppliers and the fact that she's you know last week she was saying she was at a regenerative farming conference um i, I think it, uh, are some real positives um how, how about you what what did you take from our wide-ranging chat yes much the same really i think it's it's clear that firstly sustainability is very important to her personally and that's been baked into the ethos of the Oaxaca brand, um, ahead of the curve on net zero, as you said, ahead of the curve on less meat. But interestingly, Thomasina is saying that as much as anything, that's about the heritage of Mexican street food being predominantly vegetable-based. And I think that's a really important point as we sort of reflect on a lot of the product development in in uh, plant, plant alternatives, um, often highly processed and perhaps not the healthiest. Just cooking with vegetables and grains as the raw ingredients and making something delicious that people want to eat, it can be done. She's showing it can be done. Others are showing it can be done. So I think we shouldn't lose sight of that. There's a temptation just to, to think that we have to substitute meat with something very similar if we're reducing it. Um, I think there are bigger opportunities for our health in particular around making vegetables more attractive and, and something that people want to choose when they visit a restaurant. Um, and on that subject, Thomasina touched on the, the food strategy, um, which was published, which we, which we haven't discussed yet on, on these podcasts. And um, I think the, the consensus was that it was an impressive document, well-researched, but also presented in a clear, accessible way. And Henry Dimbleby's voice was certainly prevalent throughout the report. It's not always the way with independent reports, which frankly can sometimes be a tough read. But this was almost almost read like a book, uh, more so than a than a government strategy. Um, and a, but, but but again, the critical point 
as I wrote recently in Footprint, is whether the government has any intention of adopting and implementing those findings. The, the early, early signals are not hugely positive in terms of what Boris Johnson was saying about the sugar and salt tax and not being minded to increase the cost of food, which again comes back to the point Thomasina was saying. Um, I don't know what you think, David, what your key reflections were on that. Yeah, do, do, I was going to ask you, um, uh, you're closer to the strategy um, the, than me, but it, it did seem that NGOs would be very, very happy with a lot of it. Um, and I wonder whether on the one side, that's great. But on the other, is it easier then for government to sort of leave it on the shelf? Um, because it all seems a bit too difficult. I, I, I wonder whether it's, and I'm playing devil's advocate a little bit here, too ambitious. And if he'd rein the ambition in a little bit, we might see more of it done. I, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm asking the question rather than making a statement. That's probably fair. I think equally, there will have been a lot of horse trading done before the reports launch what ten, you know i have experience of working on an independent government report and what tends to happen is that the reviewer presents their findings to the government um, who come back with a load of things they don't want to see in the report and you kind of have to trade in and out you know i want to keep this in i'm prepared to lose that so Henry will have had certain things in there that he was desperate to keep. He will have had certain things that he was prepared to lose. From what we understand, the meat tax might have been one of those things. But yes, I think the point stands, and you're right, insofar as you know, this, this, this was a government commission report, but it wasn't a report commissioned by this government. It was commissioned by the previous administration when Michael Gove was in DEFRA, doing a lot of positive talking about the green agenda. But does it have sponsorship now within Whitehall? That's a question. Uh, we don't know the answer. The government's due to publish a white paper within six months. It will be interesting to see what comes out of that, how much they adopt, how much they discard. My fear is that we will not get the systemic, strategic review of how we produce and consume our food in this country that many people think we need. We will get further piecemeal interventions that ultimately don't turn the dial in the way that's required. So that's my conclusion, and I hope I'm proven wrong. Yeah, and you wonder how, just finally, how how food service, um, how any of the changes in the government white paper apply to food service. Because it's something that Thomasina mentioned, again, is a government lack of understanding of food service. And obviously, Henry has got um, a very in-depth understanding of, uh, of the food service sector. So it'd be interesting to see whether the strategy does sort of open eyes in the past 12 to 18 months of of COVID and the impact on hospitality does finally um, result in the government seeing food service as, as a sector in its own right, as opposed to the same as the supermarkets or food manufacturing. Yes, and we should note, of course, that the government has recently published a dedicated hospitality strategy um, as part of its Build Back Better agenda. Um, it's pretty thin. Um, there's not a huge amount that's 
new in there, I would suggest, certainly not from an environmental perspective. The feedback from businesses during our recent Responsible Business Recovery Forum was, and I paraphrase, it's a tick box exercise. But at the very least, it shows the government recognising food service as a discrete sector in its own right and not part of the wider retail ecosystem. So, so that's something to be positive about. And yes, let's see where we go, because there's, there's no doubt that there is a need for the government to take a lead on setting the, uh, a positive and green agenda, not just for the hospitality sector, but for the food system. Yeah, plenty for us to write and talk about and debate over the coming months. A huge thank you to our guest, Thomasina Myers, and thank you to Maiko for your support in making these podcasts possible. This podcast was produced by the Footprint Media Group. To find out more, visit foodservicefootprint.com. Thanks for listening.